0: Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts.
1: Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.
2: Has the winter season taken a toll on your tile, upholstery, carpet? Call Cyclone Cleaners, 570-726-6200. For all your carpet upholstery and ceramic tile cleaning needs, it's Cyclone Cleaners, also offering odor treatment and soil and stain guard. Choose the only cleaning company that supplies the water to clean your home and disposes of it when they are finished. Call Cyclone Cleaners to schedule your cleaning today, 570-726-6200.
0: Welcome to Inspired by Her, the podcast that will give you the inspiration, motivation, and tips for success from some of the top executives, CEOs, and influencers from around the globe, with your host, serial entrepreneur, and named one of the most influential Filipina in the world, Kate
2: Hancock. (laughs) All right, Steve, I want to know the younger Steve. Uh, Steve, uh, where did you grow up? And uh, I'd like to get to know that.
0: Um, it's no different from anybody else on this podcast, you know, the the vicinity may be different, the country may be different, but I grew up in a shitty end of London called Leighton Stowe. Um, we didn't have money, so I grew up slightly aggravated about how poor I was. It wasn't until I hit my twenties that I wasn't poor, I was actually financially restricted. I was incredibly wealthy because I learned from a very early age, your word is your bond, you know, if you need to get up at four o'clock in the morning and work till eight o'clock at night, that's what you do. So I didn't realise the education I was getting, but I did grow up quite, quite aggravated um, and yearning for more. You see, I believe all uh, I believe all entrepreneurs, we spend a lot of our time pissed off. We spend a lot of our time aggravated at something. There's a there's a story with uh, Elon Musk that he said he couldn't believe the bank took five days to transfer money from one US account. To another. So that aggravation led him to build PayPal. Well, me, I noticed everyone I knew was poor. Everyone I hung around with was poor. Every pub I ever went to, we couldn't afford drinks. So I realized I was actually a byproduct of the rooms I was in. So I just decided to break the shackles, get out there, because there had to be something out there. And this was back in the 80s and 90s. So I didn't have, I didn't have Instagram to show me how inadequate my life was. So I had to go and try and find it myself. And therefore, I made all the mistakes and failures of trying to get a million and one jobs that would surround me with affluent, successful, wealthy people that inevitably I was fired from until I ended up creating my own.
2: Wow, Steve. Now, that is crazy. I kind of know. So what was your journey? like? Can you take me back to the very first day you started? creating your company and who was your first client
0: well i ended up a friend of mine you know you don't have the pleasure of seeing me uh, because a clubhouse but i'm not the kind of guy that you would actually love to see walking down the high street at night um you know god created me to be 245 pound of ugly so you know i ended up getting a job one day as a doorman of a nightclub in hong kong and the funny thing was I thought this was the lowest point of my life. I had gone from a construction worker, a bricklayer, which is a skilled profession. We all need them. Masonry, electricians, plumbers, we all need them. Uh, And that was a skilled job. And here I was with a job description of slap that fella, punch that guy in the mouth. That That was it. But I noticed that there were people in there that wanted a good time they wanted a good life and as i got to talk to these people they would say things like oh are you going to that party thursday you "Oh, know, are you are you going to th-? they would tell me where the places were going on but i noticed that they they couldn't get into them now they had money they were good looking people so why couldn't they so i started can kind of i like be in the connector and i did it as a trojan horse my entire career what was not was not to launch the world's most Um, successful experiential concierge firm for millionaires and billionaires, my company was quite simply a Trojan horse to look after you and therefore get an engagement and a conversation to walk up to you and go, hey, John, how come you're successful and I'm not? That was it. That was as crude as it was. So by me getting a bunch of affluent young lads in uh, um, Hong Kong into a private party, I could say, hey, guys, did you enjoy it? And they'd be like, yeah. And I could like, well, hey, what, what is it you do? How did you get into And I started interviewing them. And the funny thing is, if podcasts have ex- had existed in the 80s and 90s, I don't know if I would have ended up doing my job because podcasts are a great way of us getting to talk to people that we would never normally be around. So I was using my company as nothing more than a reason to be able to chat with some incredibly successful people. And along the way, I've had conversations with, you know, you mentioned Andrea Bocelli, the Pope, uh, Elon Musk, Richard Branson, you know, a ton of people. And I've been able to ask them all the exact same question.
2: Wow. Wow. What, what a transformation. So how did you end it up in Hong Kong, Steve?
0: <laughs> so I, I, went to, I went to a school in London, um got kicked out at the age of 15. And I was on my way to a building site one day on the train. And it was a typical early morning. I'm dressed up in everything, ready to get wet and ripped. So I'm not looking forward to go work. I didn't exactly have job satisfaction. And this guy literally on the train in a beautiful suit and a nice watch, I I remember staring at his watch, he started talking to me. And I thought to myself, who the hell are you in a nice suit? talking to me that basically looks like a bum with a with a pile of tools next to me. Who the hell are you, you know? Um, and he started talking to me because apparently when we were at school, some guy tried to pick on him and I scared the guy away. And I had apparently saved this guy from a pounding and he remembered me. And he told me that the bank that he was working at was actually recruiting trainee stockbrokers and he would repay the favor that I'd looked after him all those years ago. Now, here's the funny thing. I could never remember this guy I had no recollection of who he was at all, but I went along for the interview and I ended up getting, um, the job as a trainee stockbroker. They flew me from England to Hong Kong, along with about 60 other people. So I don't think they vetted us too much because once I got there, I landed on the Saturday. I got drunk with them on the Saturday night. Cause I was well qualified to do that. I got drunk with them again on the Sunday night. Cause again, qualified, Did orientation on the Monday, and I was fired on the Tuesday. So I'd gone all that distance for a better future, a better job, a better room to be in, and I lasted 24 hours. And I've only ever lied to my wife twice. During my time in Hong Kong when I told her everything was going well, when it wasn't, and for her 50th birthday when we surprised her.
2: Wow, what a story. Now, Steve, what did you do the very next day when you got fired for being a Chinese broker.
0: Well, what could you do? You could either sit back, you know, cry in your hands and just die, or you could just go, shit, what am I going to do with it? And I used that anger and aggravation to apply for I don't know how many jobs, you know, maybe even as many as 100. I tried over a period because they gave me the apartment. They said, seeing as we brought you here, you get the apartment for months. So, I knew I had to find another position. And it was on the last week of not getting any jobs, running out of the money I had. And I was literally in a bar called Neptune's in Wan Chai. And I was sitting on the patio on my own, drinking Shivers whiskey, not knowing how I was going to pay for the bar tab. I got to the position where I just thought, screw it. I got no money. You want to fight me? Fight me. But I'm going to drink myself stupid and then bring it on. I had, I had reached that point in my life and i was at that bar when the owner of the club came up to me and said you got we got a problem with some it was funny she said some of your people are inside you need to sort them out and i sat there drinking me whiskey thinking who are my people i came into this bar on my own you know i'm drinking on my own who are my people so i walked into the club just out of curiosity to see who she would point to and there were three white guys there drunk so these were my people and uh, she said, "You get them out." And she said, "All my people will get them out, and they will hurt them." And I, I wanted nothing to do with it. And I said, they're not my people." And she said, "If you do this, I'll pay for your drinks." And as I say, I wasn't going to pay for them in any case. I was going to leap over the counter and run. You know, I don't know how far I would have got. You know, being that drunk. But you know, I was done. I was literally done. And they always say that you know, when you open an opportunity, will arise. It arose. And uh, at that moment, she was going to pay for my for my tab. So I did it. So I went and sat down, sat with the guys, said, look, boys. And they looked at me all weird as I sat down at that table. And I said, there's two ways this is going to go. Within the next few moments, you're going to pay your bill and you're going to walk out the front door. You can come back the following day and I'll buy you a bill. Or you can stay stay sitting here, get keep getting Larry, and a bunch of guys are going to come out of that curtain, hit you with sharp objects, and you're not even going to see Tuesday. So, you know, I you're making a smart move, and I got up, walked out, and sat down with my whiskey, which no one had moved, and I was still sat on the end of the patio on my own. A few minutes later, they walked out. and went, oh, thanks, mate, thanks, and they walked off. So she said to me that night, she said, you know, you want to be a doorman? And I didn't have any job. I didn't have any future. I didn't have any money. So I went, yeah, sure. Following day, these three guys came back to the bar, and they went, oh, hey, man, thanks for that. By the way, you owe me a beer. So I turned around to the lady that owned the bar, and I said, oh, you know. I told these guys if they got out, i would buy them a beer. So, you know, we need to pay them a beer. And she turned around and looked at me and she went, you said you'd buy them a beer, you buy the beer. So on my first night, I had to buy these three guys a beer. I had no money, but I had to buy them a beer.
2: Steve, we lost you. Are you still there?
0: Yeah, did you lose that entire story?
2: Oh, no, not at all. So what (laughs) happened? So how... How long did you work there as a doorman? And what was your ex- experience like? And I think Wan Chai, I think, Steve, is this where the bar where it's kind of ma- make of cobblestone,
0: right? No, Wan Chai is, this was back in the 80s and the 90s. So basically every bar in, in that area of Hong Kong was a girly bar for the expatriates. So it wasn't a nice area. But um, my defining experience came when I started looking at the door As an opportunity, a good friend of mine, Sean Stevenson, said to me, you want to make sure things are done for you and not to you, and it's your decision on how those things are received. So I thought to myself one day at the bar, I can be pissed off about this and grouchy, or I can look to see if this opportunity was done for me. If this is actually an opportunity, is there a silver lining in this experience of me now working on the door of a shitty nightclub In in Hong Kong. So I'm trying to look for an opportunity. And on that night, some of these guys that had money that I had always been in awe of, you know, because they would just pay the bar tab. I remember they paid the bar tab. This is how bad I was. I could go into a supermarket and I knew to the cent how much money I had in my bank account. And as I was putting the groceries in my basket, I'd be adding them up so I didn't go over and my card wouldn't get declined. That's, that was the position I was in. These guys would order drink after drink after drink. And when you get drinking in a club, the club adds on a few extra drinks that you haven't had. Uh, it's just normal. It's what they do. But I remember these guys would put down their credit card to pay their bar tab, not even look at the bill. For me, that was the ultimate sign of wealth. Not even caring what the invoice said, throw your card down, that'll do it. And I remember they did. And they came up to me one night and they said, are you going to the yacht party tonight? And I said, well, what yacht party is that? And they told me where it was. And I went, "Ah, oh, I'm really not sure. When they went into the club, I walked around the corner because the harbour was just around the corner. And as I walked around the corner, I saw the the yacht that the party was being on. And I walked up to the girl and I went, hey, how you doing? I know you've got the party tonight. I just wanted to ask you, I've got four guests that are coming tonight. Now the party started like nine o'clock. I said, Do you want them here at 8 30 so they can get in lineup? Or do you want them here at 10 when the line's gone down a bit? And she straight away started flicking through a flip chart. Now bearing in mind, I've not even told her their name, but she started doing that. So as I was chatting with her, I said, No, no, no I just want to know, do you want it at 8 30 or 10? Just so that you don't get a bottleneck. And she turned around to me, and she said, I'd appreciate it at 8.30. I said, well, that's great then, you know, brilliant. And I grabbed my wallet out and I must have had, I don't know, 200 bucks on me. And I gave her 100 bucks. And I said, look, we both know what it's like. People are going to come in. They're going to have a great night. They're not going to say thank you. I wish I could change the world, but I can't. But I want to say thank you. Thank you very much for all you're doing for this party tonight. Tomorrow night, grab a takeaway and a bottle of wine and just be thankful that you pulled off a great event. Enjoy the evening. And I went to walk away. Now, as I did that, she yelled at me and she went, hang on. Who are the four people? And I gave her the four names and she wrote them down on the front of the page. And I said, do you want them to ask for you when they get here or just stand in line? She went, no, no, no. You tell them to ask for me. We'll look after them. So I went back to the club. Thankfully, they were still in the club because I was worried all the way back that they weren't even going to be there. I walked up to them and I said, hey, I've just made a phone call. Bearing in mind, I didn't even have a phone. So I've just made a phone call. I got you in, but I had to pull a few favors. It's 500 bucks each. And with like lightning, they started throwing two grand onto the table and was so excited that they were going to the party that night. In fact, they overpaid. I remember I had to give money back. But I walked up to the door, gave my buddy 100 bucks, and thought to myself, hang on a minute. We just made 1800 bucks by just basically doing something that these guys were too embarrassed to do. They fit the mold. They looked good. They had the money to buy anything that was being sold at the party, but they didn't want the embarrassment of being the one that was told, no, you can't come to the party. I didn't have that embarrassment, and I managed to get into the party, and that was the first time. And, of course, the next time they turned up, they were over the moon, they'd gone to the party, and I got to converse with them. So I realized that most rich people and affluent people, the humiliation gets bigger. They don't want to be used for a favor. They don't want to be refused. So nine times out of ten, the more high profile you get, the more money you get, the more position of power you get, the less you're able to do. So I became that conduit of removing all the embarrassment and uh, the decline. And I would get people into events that they just didn't think they could get into. And and I remember someone paying me once and I said, look, you know, you could get into that event if they knew who your name was. And they said, trust me, I could get into that event 10 times easier than, 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 you know, if, if I came to you, but I don't want those people coming back to me in a year or two years time saying, Hey, do you remember when we did this for you? We need a favor. He said, with you, I pay, you do. It's the end of the chapter. I'm paying you for the closure of the deal, not for what it will come back and bite me in the ass in three years' time.
2: Wow, Steve. Steve, do you still remember the very first four guys?
0: I think, of course. These guys I remember so vividly. And in fact, funny enough, one of them I actually connected with in LinkedIn probably about two years ago. Um, And I said, to him, you may have heard the story about the guys in the nightclub. And he said, you know, funny enough, and he keeps in touch with his other three. He said, we all bought your book and we wondered if that was us. And I went, it was.
2: Now, before I'm going to go to my next question, Dan, can you do a reset? But Steve, what was the most expensive someone paid you to do something, to meet someone?
0: Well, those are two questions. So the International Space Station, one of the first people to go up to the International Space Station was $52 million. So that's probably been the largest invoice I've ever written. Um, The most expensive amount of money spent on a celebrity, I couldn't tell you because one of the contingencies we have when we work with famous people is you're not allowed to disclose how much money was actually gone to the celebrity because they don't want the price tags being set out there.
2: Wow. Dan, are you there to do resets for people who's joining?
1: Of Dan? course, yeah. This is just incredible, Steven. It's uh, it's really astonishing how you uh, you turn something. It seems so basic of a concept, not simple or basic. Just the concept seems so basic, but yet you really found a niche and struck a chord with people, understanding uh, you know where there lies a need and a solution, you're able to provide this. So that is incredible. But we are interviewing Steve Sims, the incredible Steve Sims, the man who makes the incredible happen, the impossible possible. So he was just going through his starter story, and we're excited to keep this thing going. Uh, make sure you, you follow the club, what it takes to run a $1 million biz. Up top, click the house so you don't miss out on any of these conversations. But we are interviewing Steve Sims here. Also, make sure you tap on Steve. And you go to his social, follow him. I know he's got a lot of stuff he'll go into later as well, but make sure you show him some love, follow him on the platform, and then also follow him on social media. Back to you, Kate. Yes,
2: yeah, Steve. Wow. What is 52 million will get you?
0: Well, that was just someone. That, do you remember the first people that wanted to go up into the International Space Station? They would have to train in Russia, and then they would go up with the uh, Russian Cosmonaut program to be some of the first people in the International Space Station for seven days. So um, that was what it was at the time. I believe to do it now, and we haven't looked into doing it now because there's so much other competition going into it now. But I think now the price is like 75 mil to spend seven days on the space station. Um, But now what with um, uh, uh, Elon Musk, Bezos, um, uh, uh, Paul Allen, and Richard Branson – all doing space programs a lot of people are just waiting to see what happens with that before they pay out but it's always expensive when you're the first. Wow so
2: assuming all your clients are true referral based is that
0: correct? Do you know I can tell a funny story about that one or I literally was referral based because it was pre-internet you know this was the late 90s when I did my first website I was actually uh, doing an event in uh, Monaco and I was doing an event for Ferrari in the UK, and a British TV show, I was actually living in Switzerland at the time, and a British TV show asked if they could interview me. So they interviewed me, and during the interview, they turned around and they said, you're so secretive, you don't even have a way of people being able to contact you on the website. And we realized for the first time, we would forgotten to put the contact us page on the bloody website. There was no email, there was no phone number, there was no address, there was nothing. And so I, on the, on the TV show, was like, that's correct. We're referral only. I came off that bloody show, and I was like, up. I forgot to put that contact page on it. Of course, I now it's just naturally put in. But, yeah, we completely forgot to put a contact. But it never, ever, ever um, tied us down. And bearing in mind, at our peak, I think we were working for the Grammys and the New York Fashion Week at the time, and it was like 2004. At our peak... We only had 93 clients, but two-thirds of those were billionaires. So trust me, you really don't need a lot of clients when they're billionaires paying their bills on time. Wow.
2: Steve, it seems like you have the little black book for the rich, what what they wanted. (laughs) It's really amazing. Now, Dan, do you have a question? This is so fascinating. Now, Steve, I only have one person that I wanted to meet, and that is Richard Branson. Now, I know I could go to charity, and that would cost me fifteen to twenty-five grand. Is that the case?
0: Well, first of all, you got to ask yourself in what in what context do you want to do you want to meet Richard? You know, do you want to just be at an event, get a selfie, and be done, or do you actually want to sit down and have a conversation? And if you do want to have a conversation, what's the point? What's the benefit? What's going to be the impact out of it? You see, you know, Dan was saying earlier, and I wasn't I wasn't insulted at all. Everything I do is simple and stupid. It's very, very basic. It's very, um, it's very impactful. If it doesn't move easily, I don't do it. So if you're going to sit down with Richard Branson, you've got to ask yourself, what's the point? And then once you know what you're going to do and how you want to meet him, then it can actually be curated – and uh, um, organized to specifically answer that. If you're just looking for a selfie, you know, there's loads of events that can cost anything from a thousand bucks. You may be lucky enough to get a selfie with him. Uh, But if you want to have a conversation, you know, you're going to start the ball rolling around about 45, 50 grand.
2: Amazing, yeah. I would love to hang out at the Knicker Island. Dan, back to you.
1: Yeah, this is incredible. So just a quick reset. We have Steve Sims here. There's a little bit of background. We have Steve Sims, the man who makes the impossible possible. He was just going through his story. Really an amazing entrepreneur, best-selling author. And Steve, so I'd like to get into that piece of it. It sounds like you've had some transition. You talked about the different uh, companies you worked with, people, which is incredible. So what made you want to then write a book, and what was the purpose of your book?
0: I didn't. (laughs) That was was a funny answer to that. Um, I'm a great believer that if you find a good room, good things happen. Um, And I was in a room chatting with a few people, telling a little story, and then quite simply, um, and I'm not kidding you, a week later, one of the people that I was speaking to was from this little publishing house called Simon & Schuster, and they asked me to write a book, name dropping all the rich and famous and powerful people that I dealt with. And I said to them, if I did that, I'd be dead by cocktail hour. So, you know, it never went anywhere. I ended up doing a speech um, at one of Joe Polish's 25K events, one of his Genius Network events, and someone heard about it, sent it to this person in Simon Schuster. It went up the channels, and she came back to me, and she went, hang on a minute. How would you like to write a book, not on the rich and powerful people that you deal with, but on how a bricklayer that gets kicked out of school at the age of 15 can now speed dial Elon Musk and Richard Branson. You know, we would like that story. So, and they paid me very well, which is an important thing to know because when you're not paid to sell a book, then you have to sell a book to get paid. When you're retained and you're paid to do the book, you get to write the book that you want to write. You get to do a book that says, look, stop overcomplicating and start doing. Stop overthinking shit and just work on the basics. If it doesn't move the needle, don't do it. And I wrote that book to really think back that in the 80s and 90s, what simple stupid shit would I have liked to have known that wasn't overcomplicated? What could I have done that could have helped me, you know, avoid the education I got from, you know, failing? And when you fail, you lose money, you lose friends, you lose prospects, opportunities, and that's all education. And so I booked, I wrote the book to help people stop overthinking, get out of that way, learn the ability of how to make a proper relationship and go from there. So when the book came out, I didn't even think it was going to be a hit. In fact, the truth is we didn't have a website for the book. I didn't know anything about writing a book. Some of the top authors in the planet, from Tony Robbins, J.J. Virgin, Dave Asprey, J. Abraham, Tim Ferriss, they're all clients. So I had people that I could go to and ask questions, but I didn't bother. I just thought, eh, no one's going to care about this book. I've been paid. And when they asked me to do a launch party, I did, literally did your launch party, and I was now in L.A. at a local whiskey bar on Sunset Boulevard. It wasn't in Barnes & Noble. There was no autographed copies. I just went there with the retainer that the um, publishing house had given me for the launch party, signed it over to the bar, and I said, turn the lights on, when we've run out of money. And we just got drunk. And, in fact, shallow plug, if you go to stevedsims.com, my website, you can actually see the video of my launch party. And here's the funny thing. I didn't know they were doing a video. That was a friend of mine, Sonia Hadda. She did the video. And I had no idea she was doing it. And she sent it to me three days later when Simon and Schuster were moaning at me about not doing a promotion for the book. And I did a one-page website that just did that video. And it said, this is how I do a launch party. Now buy the book. That was the complete website at the time. And you can see the video. And at the beginning, everyone is cold, stone sober. It's all like, oh, it's such an honor to be here. Steve's such a... And as the night goes on, everyone gets plastered. And if you don't like F-bombs, don't watch the video because everyone starts getting drunk and abusive. But I put it up there. And the first couple of months, I didn't sell a lot of copies. And then the third month, it just took off. And now it's become a bestseller and translated into Thai, Vietnamese, Korean, Mandarin Chinese, Polish. Um, And it was released in Russia, I think, three months ago.
1: Wow. Congratulations, Steve. That, that's incredible. Some people are built to be authors, and some people just become authors, right? So I have two questions. It's a two-part question. Hey, Dan, actually. I have
2: a one question. Yeah. Steve, what kind of drink is that in your photo?
0: <laughs> I believe in being the exact same person I am everywhere, so it's an old-fashioned.
1: I love it.
2: All right, Dan, back to you.
1: Yes, yeah, so if you ever see Steve and you really want to build rapport, buy him an old-fashioned. I'm guessing that's Smart. the way to his heart.
0: Yep, thanks for plugging that. Yeah, good.
1: <laughs> You're gonna have a, um, you, I'm sure you have unlimited old-fashioned. So tell us, and I'm not sure if you can share, but who is that one person that inspires you? And then is there one person who you still have yet to have a conversation with that you wish you could?
0: Oh, wow. Well. I'll answer the first one. I'll answer answer the uh, second one first. Um, I was actually working for uh, the American Polo Club and the American Polo Federation in Palm Beach, and I got the chance to hang around with a bunch of British royalty. And a person that, as I was growing up in the '80s, who I had really admired—not so much. the politics because I was too young to understand it, but just because of her strength and resilience and that she was just completely different to anything that had ever happened during those decades was Margaret Thatcher. And I I have always uh, respected, and my wife is a very powerful, uh, beautiful woman, and I've always respected powerful women. And I remember Margaret Thatcher and I just like, I want to meet Margaret Thatcher. And when we were in uh, Palm Beach, um, one of the people that was from the British polo uh, team was having a dinner. Um, Margaret Thatcher was having a dinner, and I got invited to it. Now, I actually said, do you know, there's a thing I've got to get. Is there any possibility I could have that in the future? And the guy said yes, and she died. And so... I didn't do that. I missed out on that opportunity, and I never got to say hello to a woman that I had idolized uh, from a very, very early age. Um, So I'd like to have that conversation back. Um, But, um, you know, what what was your first question? I forgot what your first one was.
1: No, that's incredible. I think it's like... uh if there's no matter what the meeting is, never say no, I guess, make time for whatever. But that's, that's, um, that's a tough one. That's an incredible story. The first one was, is there anyone that you have yet to meet that you would like to have a conversation with, which I guess that could answer both.
0: That's answered. That's answered both. You see, the daft thing is what a lot of you won't realize is I'm actually not very warm and fuzzy, not very friendly, um, not very sociable. And I don't actually go out much. I ride motorcycles. I don't have a car. Um, I ride motorcycles because you can't phone me. I can't pick you up. I can't get the groceries. I can't have a coffee. I can't be messing around with a phone. I'm completely detached from the world all the time. I've got my helmet on and I'm on two wheels. And I like getting away from the planet. I live very well up here outside uh, of Los Angeles, up in the hills, you know, and I will go for days without, you know, going out of my driveway. And I like that. So regarding, hey, you know, you must be doing all of these things because, you know, you're a social butterfly. Couldn't give a shit. I worked for Elton John for eight years doing the uh, the, um, Oscar party in Hollywood. And I would go every year. And my wife was like, my God, is this please going to be the last year? You know, we didn't want to do it. It was fun. It was nosy. But, you know, after a while, everything becomes repetitive. And you just... I like to have real conversations. I've been to parties where I've ended up chatting with a valet guy and ended up standing outside for like an hour just chatting with him because he's more interesting than anyone inside the party. So try and find valuable conversations. Um, That's what I want. I don't care about flying around the planet. Done that a few times. Love traveling, but I'm in no yearn to do it. But I do like have value. I do love having a valuable conversation on what makes you tick, what you see value in, what impacts you, what impact you want to create. I like those.
1: Well, you know what? That's really aligned with everything. So, it looks like we're at time here. So, Steve, any last words? Anything that you want to close out with?
0: Yeah, let's get a little bit. Uh, um... Deep on this, my dad, um, thick Irish lad, not the sharpest tool in the shed, uh, was walking down London with me one day, smoking like a chimney, as he always did. And he put his hand on my shoulder, didn't even look at me as we were walking. And he said, son, remember, no one ever drowned by falling in the water. They drowned by staying there. And that was it. He took his hand off his shoulder, carried on walking. I remember the time going, the fuck was that about? but it did come back to me and it still comes back to me. And at the age of 55, every time I fall over and just like every entrepreneur out there does, every time shit doesn't go right or something goes wrong or we fall over, or we fall in that water. Know that you have the option of staying there or getting out.
1: All right. Well, thank you, Steve. So I know you got the jump. So what we do after is we just do a little bit of download. We talk through what we learned, some takeaway stuff. So, I know you have to jump off, but thank you, Steve. So check him out, steveshims.com, his book, Blue Fishing. Check him out. So many incredible things that you're doing. So thank you again for your time. We really are honored, humbled, and just ecstatic that you were able to come here. And I know you you touched a lot of lives here, so thank you.
0: Thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. Uh, appreciate you all, and um, do something different. All the best.
1: We hope you enjoyed the show. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. And
0: visit katehancock.com so you don't miss out on the next episode.